Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Story Blender. I'm Stephen James, and this is where great storytellers share the secrets to great storytelling. been writing uh, for, for many years. Also, he's a radio personality, and I've had him on my list for quite some time to call, and finally, I was able to get in touch with him, and he's going to be joining us today. Now, Chris Fabry is an award-winning author and radio personality who's recently been inducted into the Marshall University School of Journalism and Mass Communications Hall of Fame. A native of West Virginia, Chris and his wife, Andrea, live in Arizona and are the parents of nine children. Chris has won five Christie Awards, an ECPA Christian Book Award, and two awards of merit from Christianity Today. He was inducted into the Christie Hall of Fame in 2018, and his books include movie novelizations such as War Room and Overcomer and Novels for Children and Young Adults. And He also co-authored the Left Behind the Kids series with Jerry B. Jenkins and Tim LaHaye. He encourages writers of all skill levels through his website, heyyoucanwrite.com. And so, Chris, thanks, uh, thanks so much for joining me today. Stephen, it's an honor to get to talk with you, and uh, I, I want to ask you questions, but <laughs> you go ahead and ask me some. Oh, we'll, we'll have a conversation. That sounds perfect to me. So, um, One thing I, I'm really interested in is you both tell stories and you also write novels. You write stories. Um, you're a radio, you're radio host, and so you've done quite a number of interviews and reports and so on. And I'm just curious, are there specific storytelling principles that you have found that tend to be universal through written stories, through told stories, where you could say, you know what, these are some of the, I guess, signposts to a great story, and maybe they apply to both realms? I th- I think there are. I don't know what they are, but I, I, <laughs> I, I know them when I see them. I know them when I hear them. Uh, and part of it is delivery. There are some people who could just, who can tell a story and they could read the phone book and you'd listen mm. to them, you know, the, the intonation and, and just the, the feeling that you get listening to their voice. But I grew up in West Virginia, which is a very uh, – my mom was a big reader, but it's an oral culture. You, you mm. hand down your stories from one generation to the next, sitting around the campfire, sitting around the kitchen table. And I would go down to my uh, grandmother's house with my mom, and I would sit in the corner, and I would listen to my uncles. They'd smoke their pell-mells, and they'd tell their stories about fishing and about hunting and doing things growing up dirt poor in the Depression. And uh, uncles from the other side of the family would do the same thing. It was a little bit different. My, my father came from kind of a, a coal camp, the coal fields, and so sure. it was abject poverty. Hmm. And then my mother came from, it was a similar type of, of poverty, but there was a different a family dynamic there. And so they would tell these stories. And the way that I would answer your question is, um, what I try to do on the radio is the same thing I try to do in my books or in my sh- short fiction. I want you so wrapped with what I'm talking about and involved with what I'm talking about that you have ice cream in the back seat of the car, it's 90 degrees outside, and you pull into the garage, and you can't get yourself away from the radio. You want to hear how <laughs> this ends. That's what I want to do with all the stories or the topics that I do with my radio program as well as my fiction. If I can grab you and hang on to you so that you have to know what happens here, then I've done my job as a storyteller. Yeah, that's great. Um, I like how you grew up in you know a story-rich kind of community and, and that that really impacted you even from a young age as you listened to the family stories and maybe the tall tales and, and other stories you know, that were shared um, 
in those get-togethers when you were growing up and when you were a child. I know when I was a child, my uh, uncle always told us stories uh, whenever we would get together with um, the family for holidays, especially Thanksgiving, Christmas, and so on. Usually the men would go out hunting, the women would go out shopping, which is, I guess is another kind of hunting, and we would all come back at night and uh, have big ham roast and instead of turkey for whatever reason. And, and then he would get this look in his eye, and parents uh, you know, would go off to talk, and he would say, I'm going to tell you a story. And we would go into a corner, and there we were transported to another world, you know, and we were swashbuckling with pirates or soaring over the desert sand of the Sahara, and we were enthralled in these in these stories that he told. And, and so I think that, you know, having someone to tell you stories, whoever that is, an uncle, aunt, mom, dad, whatever, bedtime stories, I think that can have a huge impact on kids, you know, when they're growing up. Yeah, and it connects us then with the heart of the storyteller or the people, the real people or the fictional people, uh, Bruno Bettelheim talking about the uses of enchantment and and what he wrote talked about the stories that we have, uh, that we've uh, heard since childhood give us a roadmap on how to live later on. You know, we face the big bad wolf, how are you going to respond? How are you going to act? And I think in a lot of ways... What my Southern culture, you know, below the Mason-Dixon line gave me was um, you react to hardship and difficulty with laughter, with mm. humor. And that served me well as I, you know, was in, in uh, high school and college. I would make fun, you know, I'd get people to laugh at things. The problem with that is that humor can also distance yourself from the the heart of the story. So that mm. if you always have to laugh about something, you always have to turn something into a joke, so that you don't cry about it, then you never really get to the the heart of your own heart or the the heart of the story. You don't empathize with the other people, and so that's been one of the things I've had to overcome. I wrote a lot of humor when I was younger, growing up, and just starting out, because that's what came naturally to me. Hmm. And with the help of others coming alongside me and say, you know, that that's funny. Yeah, it is, but you need to rein that in. You, know, you need to pull back on that because you're you're missing something. You know, your stories aren't getting as deep as they could get. Uh, because you fall back on that humor, so I, you know, I've had to work on that. That's really interesting. You know, you were mentioning, okay, let's drive into the garage, and I don't want to turn off the car because I want to listen to the rest of this podcast or, or broadcast or this, the rest of this, this story. And um, and so part of the appeal, I think, to a lot of stories is curiosity. Of right. course, we're curious: where will things go? How will they turn out? Who committed the crime, and so on. But I think another thing that really keeps us engaged in stories is concern. So concern is a lot different, I think, than curiosity, which is a lot more intellectual. Concern is where we really were apprehensive and worried about this character and what, whatever situation they're in. And we're like, I'm really worried that they won't make it out of the house in time or that they won't catch the, you know, the bad guy or the kidnapper in time. And, and so... The two dynamics are very fascinating to me, and, and when you were talking a, m- a minute ago about you know humor and and kind of deepening your story, I feel like maybe deepening it into that area of emotional concern has been um, has been something that's probably helped you and uh, a lot over the years. Absolutely, and the uh, Donald Moss's "The Emotional Craft of Fiction" is is a really good book. You know that that kind of hooks you. I think what you're hitting on is the main thing that I just over the last few years and the last few books that I've written that I've seen. I've really intentionally tried to do this, and it's the it's the same thing. You do this on radio, or if you're standing in front of people, or if you're writing. Um, it's a uh, James V. Smith wrote a book about uh, novel writing, and he said the number one thing that happens in all of the bestsellers, in all of the books that were really, really uh, people glommed onto from you know really poorly written, but you know a lot of people read it to you know great classics. The number one thing is participation. Hmm. That there is a that there is something that happens in this story 
that causes you to be a part of the story rather than you're just reading something, which is something that Hemingway talked about, too. You know, it's, it's, that's the writer's, uh, one of the quotes that I have that I look at every day is, is Hemingway's quote about the writer's struggle, and that is to make the story real to the person who's reading it so that they are part of it. And so in, on the radio, for example, I, wa- I don't want to just interview somebody. I just want to have a conversation with somebody about some topic or what their latest book is or you know, what's going on in the news. I want to present a topic that will touch some nerve in the person on the other end of the microphone that says, this is my life. He's reading my email. He knows what I'm going through because he's talking about the same thing that I'm going through. And that's, you know, that's the thing that hooks you. So with a, with a story that I, with a novel that I write, if I can present the characters real enough, well enough that are going through exactly what you're talking about, you know, the, the conflict, the tension, so that I get them to not only care about the this person, this character that I'm trying to draw, but I also involve the reader. Uh, and how do you do that? That's the, that's the trick. That's what everybody yeah. wants to know. Yeah. Um, and I think uh, Jerry Jenkins, I worked with Jerry Jenkins for many, many years writing books together, and, and it was a great tutorial for me. But he would, one of the things that he would always say, he would write on the manuscript and it read, uh, he'd say, give the reader credit. Give the reader credit. Hmm. Don't don't explain everything. Resist the urge to explain, so that you give the reader something to do. When I look at my stories that don't work, or on some level they're not working, what I realize I've done is I've told the reader everything. Hmm. And film does this a lot better. You see it much easier to describe. It's like somebody asks somebody else a question and they don't answer it, and the person who's sitting watching the movie is like, what's the answer? (laughs) What's the answer to the question? They they leave you hanging. You don't know. And so there is that tension inside of you. I want to know the answer to that. It pulls you in, so you are a part. You're trying to figure out what in the world is going on with this story. So uh, that's a long answer to a no, short that's question. Great. No, that's that's really interesting, and I feel like it brings up a couple of you know really significant points. And one really is this idea of trusting readers, yeah. um, and you know, so that's one thing that I wanted to explore in a second. But the other was these this idea of universal um, desires that. That we as readers read a story and we're like drawn in, participate because we connect with the pursuit or the desire of the main character, whether that's to find freedom or love or to be loved or to have adventure in their life or, or finally to have security or whatever that might be. I think that's one of those things that really, you know, grabs hold of us and draws us in. So, do you, as you're writing, do you tend to try and think in terms of like universal human desires? Like, what will my readers be, you know, able to identify with here? Where that's pursuit pursuit of meaning or significance or, or any of those kind of things? Um, I think I do, but I think it's the same uh, the, the debate between being a pantser and and being a plotter. You know. Uh, I think I think both people who sit down and write a story and they don't know where it's going to go and and they do that do it that way Stephen King kind of thing yeah. or the person who meticulously plots and uses a snowflake method or whatever uh, they're both doing the same thing they just it just looks differently so the the universal question of do I look for the characters of the universal no I'm not that smart I can't <laughs> my brain doesn't work that way but when I what I try to do is find somebody that I care about, find somebody that I want to know what happens in, you know, put them in a situation where it's bad and it gets worse and even worse and everything that they do, you know, makes it worse and worse. I, I, want, I want to be able, you have to make people care about that, that person. And the way that I do that and the way that I find the universal story, if I do, is to simply paint the, the person's life as well as I possibly, as deeply as I possibly can, as authentically as I can, allowing the reader to come along. I'll give you an example. I've just started a story that I uh, 
I've been struggling with for several months, and I, I almost don't want to to talk to you because I'm so hung up. You know, I, I, <laughs> I have too many questions about well, who is this, and who's the who's the main antagonist, and all this, and it's like. I, I, I told myself the other day, just write the scene. Write the scene that is on your mind. Uh, you, there's a lot that you don't know, that, but there's a lot that you do know. And so I wrote the first scene, and the first scene of the story is a man who is sitting in his garage with a nail gun in his hand, and he doesn't know why he's there. He doesn't know how he got there, and he looks around the garage, and he hears people calling his name, and he can't figure out, why do I have this nail gun fully charged? And he looks down, and he sees he's sitting in his boxers and a T-shirt. And then he sees that his dog, that, you know, his dog is his best friend, his dog is not there. And so you have all these questions about, yeah, why, why in the world would he be there? Sure. Well, the the person this person that I'm writing about has a specific form of Alzheimer's, and the people around him are trying to love him well, and they are basically you know getting getting rid of stuff because they have to move in with a family member. They, he and his wife have to move in with a family member. So when the garage door finally opens. The there's a, a fellow from Caring Transitions who's there to take away his 1965 Mustang that he's been working on and all of his tools. Yeah, and so uh, they've they've removed all the sharp objects and any kind of firearm. The only thing he can find is a nail gun <laughs> to protect his stuff. And so I'm hoping that by writing this this first scene, that it will pull you in and that you'll care for this guy. And you'll want to, you'll want other people to love him, and for him to receive love, as well as the other people that are on the periphery. Uh, again, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's where I am in that story. Well, that's interesting. I think. Um, do you know where he came from? Were you working on another story, and then you had this idea, this image of this character, or were you just saying, "I have a new story I need to write for a contract or whatever," and then? Um, Start, do you know where it came from? I don't always know where the original idea comes from. I'm just right. curious if you did or not. I, I some some stories, you know, some stories I've, you know, I have a a moment in time when I say this is where it all goes back to. On this one, um, it was a friend of ours. We went to buy a car. You know, I've got nine kids, and so I bought so many cars for for my and they're mostly adult now, but we were going to a, a friend and his wife, and they were getting rid of their car because they were moving to another state. And I, we went over, and, and uh, she worked with me. He usually would work with me on this. And it was like, I wonder why she's working with me instead of Jim with the, you know, the title and all that kind of stuff. Okay, sure. And then I yeah. hear him in the other room saying to my wife, well, you know, this Alzheimer's thing is... oh. And I look wow. at his wife, and I had no idea. Yeah. I look at his wife, and I can see it on her face, and she mouths to me, I can't believe he said that, mm. because it, this was something that he, he kept secret. So uh, later on, we, we did, you know, we, we bought the car, and uh, I went back, and I said, let me, let's just go to dinner. And so I just asked him questions. Is this scary for you? Is this what, what is going on as you face this whole thing? And he's very lucid, you know, he's, he's very with it. Um, but he says, you know, I, I'm really not going to know that much, you know, from what they say. And so we have this conversation at dinner, and that night I came home and I could not go to sleep. Yeah. Because I had this, you know, first of all, I care an awful lot about this couple. We, we just were down the street from them. This was a fellow who took me and my son's fishing. You know, he's this outdoor guy. It is, he has so he's in the military. He told us stories about all this stuff. But the, the image that I got from that conversation was, um, Chris, I want you to do something for me. I want you to, when things get bad for my family, I want you to take my life. Hmm. And I thought, what would, what would the person on the other side of the table do 
with someone that they really cared about who is not saying, take my life because it's going to get too hard for me, but help me uh, make it easier for the people that I love. I don't want them to go through this. Wow, yeah, interesting. What would go, yeah, what would go on inside the other person's mind? So the, the idea came from that conversation, and, and my friend didn't ask me that. I just kind of, what if he had asked me that? How would I respond to that? And I think a, you know, a question like that will lead you into some really dark places, but it can also lead you to some redemptive, you know, Shawshank Redemption kind of, <laughs> kind of places as well. Yeah, that's fascinating because just just hearing you explain it uh, as a storyteller, you were just naturally asking these questions. Well, what if? What if? What if this happened? Or where would this play out? Or how could I play this out? And one of the things that grabbed me was this idea of a moral dilemma. Yeah. And uh, instead of a moral message where you're trying to get a certain message out to people, whatever that might be, this moral dilemma of what would I do if... I were in this terribly difficult situation that has tension, that has drama, and that has the heartbeat of a story within it. Yes, yeah. and what ha- you know the kind of the log line, the tag line that I have for this is the friend that he's talking about has a a painful history. So a man who can't remember and a man who can't forget, hmm. and they come together. You know this unity of opposites that are are struggling, really what they're struggling with is how do I live, you know, how do, how do I move toward life and, and hope in the middle of the, you know, the struggle that I have. And so, you know, I was stuck with a, a lot of the different questions. I just sat down and said, Here, here's what we're going to do. I could have started, I could have written that, um, that restaurant scene, you know, with him asking that. But I thought, no, I can't start there. I've got to start with the, the problem with the man that he has with the guy with the nail gun. And then I've got to go to the other fellow, and I've got to get you to see the struggle that he is going through and the, and the whole past thing. Um, so, you know, that, that's where I am right now, very early stages. Yeah, that's an, it's nice to sort of uh, peel away and, and look at the early stage, the, the first little moment of this story that's, that's being shaped and being formed within uh, your writing world, your writing mind, and that's fascinating. Um, and it brings me to something that I was thinking of, of asking about, actually, and that is, I know a lot of your stories have been inspirational in nature, uh, Christie Award-winning books and so on, uh, all within, um, but really an inspirational realm. How do you shape a story that is that is there to be redemptive or give hope or inspire people without it becoming just a sermon in disguise? <laughs> yeah, boy, and and. And the question begs then you've seen you've seen this done and you've seen it done poorly because you come away feeling like you've been told something. Um, uh, let me answer it by this. I wrote a book called June Bug um, in eighty uh, two thousand nine and it was published and it actually was nominated for a Christie Award. It didn't win. I think it's one of my best books, and it's one of the books that keeps coming back, that people will keep coming back. You know, I like your last one about Junebug. I just love oh, Junebug. Interesting. Yeah. And it's because the story is of a little girl. She's eight years old, and she rides around in an RV with her dad all over the country. And she walks inside of a Walmart one day, and on the cork board to the left, where all the missing children's pictures are, she sees herself. Ooh, interesting. So the question is, uh, who am I? Who is this little girl? Who is the man in the RV who says he's her father? Who is he? And basically, who am I? Uh, So that's the first page. The rest of the novel is finding out who she is, who Junebug is. Her name is Natalie. And... And there, the relationship, I based that novel on uh, Jean Valjean and Cosette in Les Miserables. Hmm. Uh, and I used some of the devices of that loosely to kind of formulate the story. Um, 
Now, fast forward probably five years after that, and I'm at a baseball game with my last son, our last puppy, who's uh-huh. playing Little League. And there was a lady there who was, uh, if anybody got a skin knee or they hurt themselves in any way, she was an EMT at a local mine. And so they brought her into service to patch anything up, you know, anybody who get hit with a ball or whatever. And uh, she, she engaged me in conversation. She found out, you know, that I write stories. And she said, well, what, what, uh, what book should I read if I you was know, just going to start out? I said, Junebug. Junebug, probably the one. And I didn't know anything really about her. So about a month later, she, she comes up to me during a game, and she said, uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but I'm an atheist. And hmm. I said, no, I've, I, I didn't know that. <laughs> That's fascinating. Tell me more. Yeah. Um, and she said, I don't read Christian fiction. I don't yeah. read inspirational fiction. It's not who I am. But she said, what you did with that novel wasn't preaching to me, wasn't telling me that I needed to believe the same way that you believe uh, about a lot of different things. What you did was you just made me care about this little girl mm. and take me all the way through the story with her. And she said, I'm still an atheist. I don't agree with you about, you know, all of these things about the Bible and other things. She said, but I really enjoyed the story because it felt like it was real. So I think that the way that you you write an inspirational tale like that is to make it as real as you possibly can and not go into it with an agenda of, uh, I've got I got to get everybody in the in the story to believe like like I believe or like the characters believe yeah. because what happens with that is there is no tension then if we all agree about everything there's no tension yeah. in the story and you, it and it's not reality because everybody has relationships where there's tension and they're wondering the big bad wolf how do I deal with the big bad wolf in my life how do I love the people that I that I really care about who disagree with me about this on one side or the other, how do I do life? And if you write good stories like that, it won't tell people how to live. It will show people uh, how characters, how, how people in the story respond to those things. And, 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 and here's the other thing. Let them make mistakes. Hmm. Let them, let them be, be dead wrong about something and have to come back and struggle to apologize and do it wrong, you know. Yeah. Um, that's what real life to me is. And, and, and I don't even call my tales inspirational or even Christian yeah. books. Uh, what I, what I, I was just telling them, that they're, they're good stories that you're going to enjoy no matter where you come from. Yeah, no, that's, that's fantastic. I, I like that whole approach. So... Um, so tell us a little bit about your new project, the new book that you're writing. Um, I know it's not scheduled to come out for a few more months yet, but I know you've been doing some edits on it, and um, I'd, uh, I'd love to hear a little bit about A Piece of the Moon, oh. your, new, your new project. <laughs> Even the way you say that, I love it, Stephen. <laughs> um, yeah, this is a, you know, I didn't come up with the title. We could talk about titles, too. How do you come up with titles? I didn't come up with the title until in the middle of the process, and this kind of came out of the blue to me uh, as I was driving around one day. It's, it's basically, I, my fiction comes alive when I go back to my roots in West Virginia. Uh, I've got a friend, Rod Dreer, who writes mainly nonfiction, and they said, Rod, you know, when you write stuff, it, it's, it's really good. All your writing's good. When you write about Louisiana, where you grew up, it just comes alive. Mm. And I feel the same way about my roots in West Virginia. I can, I can close my eyes and I can see the brilliant color in the fall of West Virginia or the snowfall or the creeks and the hills and the hollers and the people. I know the people who populate the, those hills. And so I wanted to go back to those roots and tell a story. I grew up of, in, as a teenager, got a job at a little country and western radio station, and I learned the chops there. And I've always wanted to go back and write a story that was based around this, 
this the hub of this little station in a little town that doesn't mean anything to anybody. And the the vehicle of this is a man who hides a treasure in the hills somewhere and tells everybody about it. Now this is going to this is probably going to remind you of the Forest Fen. I don't know if you know of Forest Fen and the and the uh, million dollar uh, thing that he hid in a treasure chest that he hid. I think I did hear about that, and I think he just passed away this week. I believe exactly. Yeah, he that, did. Yeah, and that's... and the timing of this, you know, uh, a couple of months, uh, three months ago, I think it was, it came out that someone said that they had found it, and then Forrest Fenn said, "Yes, he did. He sent me a picture. It's all anonymous." So I still have my questions about this. And then I learned that he he passed away. And it's like, wow, there's a lot of questions that I have about this that won't be answered. But over the last few years, hearing that story, I thought, what if there's a guy, what if there's an old, crotchety, kooky guy who wants to hide a squirrel away of, you know, a big $5 million worth of whatever in the hills, and his main reason for what Forrest Fenn idea was, I want to get people out into the countryside. I want them to exercise, breathe clean air again, you know, be uh, naturalist conservationists. I want them to get out there. What if this guy in my story, his idea is, I want to get people reading the King James Bible. <laughs> and, and I'm going to hide, I'm going to have scriptural clues scriptural bread crumbs where you have to read the bible and interpret the you know this is you know uh, how to how to find this uh, this cash this and so so that's the idea behind it and and along with that he hides something in there that is of inestimable value it's worth much more than the gold and the silver and the cash that he hides there is something in there that cannot be valued uh and he squirrels it away and then lets people just run with it hmm. and so the the radio station is constantly raiders of the lost ark has come out it's set in 1981 oh wow. so they play raiders of the lost ark theme because this gideon quidley is his name he has hidden a replica of the ark of the covenant uh, somewhere in the hills and insides all this stuff. Well, the you know the local station runs with this, and nobody thinks that it's really there. It's just some old blowhard, you know, it's old kooky. And and what they discover is not only is it real, but it might be in their town. Yeah. And so that's that's kind of the the gist of the story. And the people then who populate it, uh, one of the main characters is a. Uh, is a lady who runs a junkyard, and her her nickname is Pidge because she has a pet pigeon who hit a guy wire on the <laughs> on the radio station tower and swirled to the ground. And she's kept this pigeon for years, hmm. and you know, sitting sitting behind the the counter there at the junkyard. And what a what a great place to set a story in a little radio station. Right behind it is junkyard, the castoffs, the castaways. Everybody in this town feels less than, feels like, mm. you know, we, we're forgotten. We're, we're, we don't count to anybody. And um, so that's, that's the impetus for the story. I like when you were talking about it um, that uh, you had this sort of, I can't, uh, whenever you were mentioning, you know, West Virginia, you, I could tell in your voice, you just this love of the land, the love of the place, the love of the you know the people that you grew up with and that you knew back in the '80s and so on, and um, I could, that could come. That came even in just what you were sharing now, and I'm sure it comes through more in the story that you that you write. How important do you think setting uh, is and the geography of a story to really draw draw listeners in? In other words, like you could, could you pick up your story from West? Virginia and just plop it in the middle of Minnesota, or wouldn't it work? Well, I think you could, if you wrote the, I think the people are the main thing. Mm, yeah. What are the quirky, what's the quirky nature of the people and the, and the culture that's there? I think you've got a different culture, similar but different in, in Minnesota. Sure. Can I, could I set the same thing in Florida, in the Everglades, or 
in Pat Conroy's neck of the woods, you know, down in Beaufort, South Carolina. Could I do that? Yes, but I need to. I need to change, you know, change the. There's a lot of little state, little uh, radio stations in South Carolina and Florida and Minnesota, you know. So you, you could do that. The change would have to be um, organic from the people that I'm writing about. Yeah. Uh, and if you, you know, since I grew up there, that's what I know. That's what I know the best. I wrote a book a, a few years ago called Borders of the Heart, and it was right when we had moved to Tucson, Arizona. And we came in contact with a, a bunch of organic farmers who uh-huh. would, you know, go to the farmers market and have their wares. And I tried to write a story that was, you know, has a lot to do with the border, the drug trafficking, organic farming, <laughs> and and put it all together with a gun battle and you know people who are looking for this person who stumbles into the organic farm and that kind of thing. I don't think I had been here long. Looking back on it. Uh, there's some people who say, that's a really good story. I really like that, and I'm glad. Uh, but I don't think I'd been here long enough to really understand everything that I needed to understand in order to write fully about it. Uh, and that's why I think I keep going back to West Virginia. I just, I just know the people because I'm one of them. It seems like in our culture today, over the last year or so, this idea of cultural quote, appropriation or writing about a culture that's not your own has really kind of taken um, taken on a life of its own where some authors are saying, well, I can't write about this or that. I can't write about a woman character because I'm a man or vice versa or whatever. Um, and uh, And so... It's difficult. You want to respect, you know, the the culture, or whatever it is that you're writing about. Um, but um, but I think I think there can be a, a a negative to that too. Whereas, like writers, one of our jobs is to enter the minds of different characters and different people and so on, and try to tell their stories. So it's a sort of a fine line of respecting culture, writing authentically, but also not being afraid to allow people to think maybe differently. Yes, I totally agree with you. And the the two books that I wrote with the Kendrick brothers, with the films War Room and Overcomer, both of those stories, the main characters are African American. Hmm. So I didn't grow up African American. I, you know, what do I know? How how can I tell? Especially a sixteen year old, fifteen year old African American girl. You know, I've never been one. Yeah. How can I possibly do that? You know, how could possibly inhabit the uh, the humanity of of her character? And I struggled with that for a little bit, and then I realized she's a human being. Yeah. Yes, she has specific things that she is dealing with and and the way that she looks at her life that I have not can I move into her life and and use her experience my own experience through her through her eyes uh and then the <laughs> the other miss clara in war room you know she's an older african american who's a widow now and the people who read the the that story especially just say, you know, I, I felt like I, I knew her, and when she was in this little study that she had with people from the neighborhood, it was like, I, I've heard those kinds of conversations. How do you do that, you know? Um, and I think it's part of letting your imagination run and, and being willing to take the risk of, of moving, you know, in a direction like that or, you know, male writing the female perspective. Uh, I, don't, I don't limit myself to only writing uh, male characters who were from West Virginia. Sure. <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I, think that will, I think that will stunt your art. Imagine if you are a painter and you can only paint people who look like you. Hmm. It's what you are seeing that you're putting on the canvas. It's, it's not what you've experienced yourself necessarily. So, you know, I... I re- yeah, and I like the that. other thing is that the, the stuff that's come out in the last... Uh, few days and whenever this is, is going people listen to this with the academy awards and you have to have this this and this in order to be considered for yeah. feature film and it's like well i understand you know i want diversity and i want inclusion and i want other people but you know do do you do you take down do you rewrite the world war 2 movie 
with all the Caucasian guys storming Normandy Beach because there's not representative from other people. He's like, it's a historical event. How, how do you do that? How do you do that? I know. Um, it brings up difficult questions, and yeah. and I think, uh, you know, respect lies at, at the heart of it all. I mean, the, the intention, I think, is is um is is it's well intentioned and and all of those things and and yet um i think it it can like you said artistically sort of uh blunt or whatever if you're trying to write about someone in a different situation not to be afraid of that but to do your research and to really step into the humanity of what happened and do right. you know be authentic and all of the kind of things that you were you know, explaining even earlier, uh, without even uh, you know addressing the idea of cultural differences and so on like that. Right. And and aren't you glad? You know, I read some books when I was a kid that were uh, very motivating to me uh, in in the whole writing thing. Uh, and and I'm so glad that those uh, writers who wrote children book for children books for children. Um, that they didn't hold back simply because they, like Gary Paulson, probably never was in a plane crash and I had a hatchet given. <laughs> Maybe he did. I don't know. But I'm I'm glad that he went there with his story. I'm glad that Madeline Lingle went there with her stories that she wrote from a lot of different perspectives about a lot of different people. And I I don't want to handcuff anybody and say, no, you can't write that because yeah. you haven't this right that's that's good and um when you mention that it is true you've written books for children and for teens as well and and um besides the novelizations you've also done these what have you found anything like writing for children as opposed to writing for adults are there basically some storytelling i guess principles or things that you say you know what it's kind of like similar or is it very different for you it's more difficult to write for children uh i think because of the vocabulary and the the ways that you uh put it on the page mm. uh, in the sense that you you have to you have to remember who you have to remember your audience more often than when i write adult fiction uh, because then I'm, I'm writing for myself. I'm telling myself the story, and then editors will read it and they'll tell me, you know, didn't understand this, didn't understand that. A child, when you're writing for children, y- you are, you're doing something that, is, you know, you're trying to enter, you, uh, to pull them in with the story, to hook them with the story, to hook them with the language and get them to love the language, because this may be, you know, one of the first few books that they'll read on their own, mm-hmm. perhaps. Um, and that's what happened to me when I was a kid. I mean, I read the Hardy Boys, like, every one of them. I had to go down, <laughs> and my mom would let me. It was $3.50 in the hardback Hardy Boys back then. It was just like, I just love these things. And I had a seventh-grade teacher who said, you know, you've read the Hardy Boys, and you've read this, that. I think it's time for you to move on. Hmm. And uh, and that summer, she gave she gave me a reading list, and the first book on it was To Kill a Mockingbird. And I read that story, and I go back, I just reread it. I read it probably every year or two. Uh, I read the Sissy Spacek audio version of it, which is just fantastic. Sissy Spacek is so good at this. Um, And I can tell the places where she gets emotionally, you know, moved by the things because you could hear it in her voice. Uh, But I read that story. And there's nothing at the front of it. You know, it's talking about Maycomb, and, and it's talking about the streets and where the story started. And it's like, there's no reason for this to have worked. But it did. Hmm. It did because it was just so real. You could see those, without ever seeing the film, you could see those houses, and you could see the treehouse, and you could see Dill, and you could see, you could picture Boo Radley. Everybody's got a Boo Radley in the neighborhood. Everybody's got somebody weird that's hanging in the, <laughs> skulking in the corner. I mean, I got people in my family who fit into that category. Um, and so it was just so immersive that it was like, I felt like a new scout. I felt like a new Jim. Yeah. And Dill, 
and Calpurnia, you know, you're, and Reverend Sykes, and what it was like then to go up in that balcony and sit with the African-American people looking down at what was going on down, you know, here's the real world that's going on down here, and here's the injustice, and you're feeling it. You're just, you're moved by this. Uh, you, if you do that for a child and draw them in, you have hooked a reader for life. Mm. Not necessarily on your own material. Sure. You know, you, you've done this for, and I had that done for me. I was hooked on the power of words and on the power of reading, and that's why I think I write today, because I want to do for somebody else what To Kill a Mockingbird did for me in my heart and in my soul when I was in the seventh grade or so. That's, uh, that's a great testament to writing, to the inspirational um, aspect of stories and storytelling, not just inspirational in the sense of hope or you know, faith, but, um, but just the idea of being captured by a story, picturing the story, entering the story. I love all the things that you've said, you know, about participating within a story. All of these things, I, I think, can or be very, very, very helpful for anyone who's writing or working on a story of their own. And I wanted, to, before we close up, I know that you have a program where you help people who are writing their own stories as I mentioned earlier in the um, in the introduction, you have a website and a program for that. What are what are a couple of the things, the keys or secrets that you try to um, share with people at HeyYouCanWrite.com? Well, the the title of that came from. It sounds like a weird. Why would you have a weird name like that? The title of that came from a journalism professor who taught at Marshall University, where I I graduated. When I was in high school, I was in a forensics competition, and they had this one competition where you would stand, uh, sit in front of a, a TV camera, you would read um, three minutes or two and a half minutes of prepared news that you had written yourself. You'd do a commercial, and then you'd read two and a half minutes of cold reading news. Mm. And um, that year, <laughs> I won't go into all the specifics, but I, I messed up the commercial. But since I was doing rip and read at the radio station, you know, rip off the UPI machine and just read it, you know, as the news, and I was pretty good at that. So I, yeah. you know, I could, I wouldn't flub names. I just skip over and keep going. Uh, so I got, I didn't get first place, but I got a pretty high score, even though I'd flubbed up the commercial. But the thing that I remember that from that was Boz Johnson, who was the you know the host of the the local news guy NBC affiliate, who was actually president of the RTNDA, the Radio and Television News Directors Association, over Walter Cronkite and <laughs> David Brinkley, you know all that. You know he's a he's he's a heavy hitter in the in the journalism thing, and the one judge said you're. Your commercial was in poor taste. <laughs> in poor taste, okay. In poor taste. I did a commercial for Preparation H. Okay, ah, funny. I'm I'm like in the eleventh grade. What do I know? I mean, he's a crazy kid, you know. I was trying to be funny. Saturday yeah. Night Live and all that. But but Boz wrote in big bold red letters, red felt Tim uh, pen. Hey, comma, you can write! Exclamation point. Wow. And I held on to that. I held on. We, we lost the contents of our house, which is another sad story, a few years ago. But I held on to that and held on to that because that was the first validation that I had from anybody that I respected. You know, my mom or dad or teacher sometimes would say, yeah, you, you, you could do this. You have a pretty good uh, you know, vocabulary, et cetera. But Boz was the first person who made his living writing and presenting news who said uh -huh. to me, you, you, you're good. This, this is good. And that validation then, it took me a long time. It took mm -hmm. me a long time to take the, the leap to say, you know what? I don't know if I'll ever be published or not, yeah. but I want to do this. I, I want to spend the time and the effort to learn the craft which is why I bought Story Trump Structure and, <laughs> and a lot <laughs> of other books. <laughs> yeah, a lot of other books like uh, the How to Write Best Selling Fiction by Dean Koontz. You know, that was one of my the best books that I ever read in in the eighties. 
Um, but I, I spent a lot of time, and I wrote a lot of really bad stories. So what I do on the site is I tell you everything I've done wrong <laughs> all these years and, and give you examples of you know, just what we've talked about here, the things that I'm working on, the struggles that I have, the struggle to get down. You know, do you need a word count? Do you need to plot everything out? Yeah, yeah. What do I, what do, I do? And I think most people just need somebody to look them in the eye and to say, if you want to do this, if you want to spend the sweat equity and the time that it will take to get better, you can get better. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, are there are there writers that are born? Are there writers that come out of the womb? There probably are. And God bless them. I you know, I wish I were. I'm not. Yeah. I just have have I have a love of words, and I've I've seen what words can do in me. So what stories will do in me, and I want to do that for somebody else. So that's basically what the uh, what the site's all about. Well, that's great. So, so Chris, if people want to check that out, they can go to heyyoucanwrite.com. You got and uh, where would be the best place for them to check out your books or maybe your radio uh, broadcast? Is there a place online you'd like to direct our listeners? Sure. The the uh, my website's just chrisfabry.com. That'll get you to all the books and the kids' books and everything that I've done. ChrisFabryLive.org is the radio show, so you can check out the uh, the archives there and the the free podcasts and all that. That's great. So we want um, our listeners to check out your books, and as you were mentioning earlier, you mentioned a couple of them that would be perhaps good to to read or to start with, Junebug being one that you you brought up. Are there any others that uh, recent uh, releases or any other books that you'd say, you know what, this would be a really good one for people to uh, check out if they're not familiar with, uh, with your stories? There's one called Under a Cloudless Sky that uh, is set in a, in a town, little West Virginia town called Beulah Mountain, and they've got the uh, encroaching coal company that's coming and, and a lot of uh, runoff, and the people are struggling there to be able to stay in that town. And the, uh, the main part of that story is a, an, old, an old lady who has a, has a past, Ruby and Bean. It's basically the story of Ruby and Bean from the 1930s, and then in uh, the early 2000s. So it, it tells the stories back and forth between those two time periods under a cloudless sky. Okay, fantastic. That sounds fascinating and interesting, and I like uh, the, kind of the dual storytelling aspect of it, the past and the present. So, Chris, thanks so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate your time. Thank you for some great questions and a, a good conversation about my favorite subject of writing. <laughs> thank everybody. I want to thank our listeners. Thank you for tuning in. For more info about our other guests and to check out our other broadcasts, uh, search for us on iTunes or Spotify or click to thestoryblender.com. Don't forget to like us and subscribe to receive our weekly podcasts on Friday evenings. We hope that everyone is um, doing well, staying safe and healthy. And folks, always remember, the art of the story is all in the blend. Take care, and we'll see you next time.